Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast. This is an election year. Will Donald Trump be re-elected? What is going on with the Democrats? And has America gone even more crazy? We'll be discussing all of these things and more, more than once a week, because we don't feel you have enough Americano in your life. And I have a special offer for Americano listeners. If you want to subscribe to the Spectator's US edition, which is brilliant, by the way, I edit it, you can go to www.spectator.us forward slash subscribe and take advantage of our special Americano offer. If you insert the code Americano in capital letters like Donald Trump on Twitter, you will get 5% off. Please do so. I'm joined today by Benjamin R. Teitelbaum, and we're going to be discussing his book, War for Eternity, The Return of Traditionalism and the Rise of the Populist Right. Now, Ben, first of all, congratulations on the book. It's very, very interesting indeed. And I would just like to start asking, I mean, the, the hero of this book, the, or the anti-hero perhaps, is, is Steve Bannon. And I think what this book does, which is very original, is address this idea of traditionalism, which probably needs a bit of explaining. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean by traditionalism in the way you use it in the book and in the way that it applies to Steve Bannon? Sure, sure. And thank you for having me with you, Freddie. It's, it's a pleasure. Traditionalism has a deceptively simple and familiar sounding name, but it is first and foremost a philosophical and a spiritual school, not a political ideology. It was an attempt once upon a time to look for commonality among the older religions in the world based on the belief that there used to be a, a true authentic religion that was that was later lost to humanity as the years went by. But where it comes into play in politics is with a couple simple ideas, you could say. One is that it rejects the notion of linear time. So it may seem like a wild idea or like a simple idea rather that what I'm saying right now is now in the past, irrevocably so. But traditionalists tend to believe in cyclic time. They, instead, they, they follow Hinduism, which is one of the religions they look to for, for truth as suggesting that society cycles through four ages, from golden to dark and back again, and we never really go anywhere, and, and the, our past is our future, and vice versa. And the other idea to take from traditionalism, especially when it went to, to politics, was the idea of social hierarchy, the belief that also in a golden age, priests are a caste to be exalted above all others, and as society and the world gets worse, as this time cycle goes forward, hierarchy starts to disintegrate and we end up with a society based on not priestly or spiritual principles, but instead fornication, material pursuits like money, moral degeneration, and also a more homogenous society. That hierarchy itself disintegrates. So is it fair to say, as it's understood in the minds of various sort of populist, if you like, people on the right... It's a rejection of liberalism and egalitarianism. Yes. When it manifests in politics, all of that is very, very vague sounding, right? And very fanciful almost. But when all of that works its way into politics, the product is, is a profound anti-modernism and anti-liberalism. You know, no way, if that's your, your, your point of departure, could you believe in progress, for example. You know, believe that we would meaningfully learn learn meaningfully valuable things about the world in the future that haven't already been discovered and that we could create a sort of paradise here on earth that had never existed. 
That's the absolute antithesis of all of that. And that sort of link to Hinduism and to cyclical ideas about time does sort of form a bridge with fat between traditionalism and fascism. And I think this is sometimes quite fatuously discussed in the media that, you know, that, that the far right is fat or that just the right, the populist right is fascist and so on. But there are interesting connections, are there not, between the understanding of time and the nature of humanity that, that, that fascists embraced in the 20th century and what people are doing today. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. And, and you know, and I have to say, I'm, I'm much more restrictive, I think, than a lot of commentators in using the word fascism, ju- just because I think it, 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 it quells our curiosity. But one defining feature of fascism, at least according to some of my colleagues in the academy, is, is a belief in, in national rebirth a belief that there was a lost golden age that through, you know, energy or fortune, a society or a nation can bring back to life. Um, there's an inherent cyclicality in that. You know, this the notion of a third Reich building on top of the first and the second. And arguably some people would say the slogan, make America great again, is all about a, a sort of a past golden age that can be can be made to live again. Which which means um, that Reagan then was a was a fascist. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this, that's the problem with all of these kind of reductive definitions of fascism is that we suddenly find ourselves being able to apply them in all sorts of places. But you're you're right to pick out the fact that there's a sort of conceptual resonance going on here in a, a criticism of of progress, but also a notion that what was great before is still available to you. And the the concept of cyclic time that we would see in in Hinduism and some other pre-monotheistic Indo-European religions is is one that resonates. Yeah. And in the way that it informs Bannon's thinking, there seems to be two key figures, Julius Evola and René Guignon. I'm never sure if I pronounce that right. Guignon. Guignon, is that right? Yes, yes. But Evola, I first became aware of Evola, well, I'd, I'd actually heard of him before, but I first became aware of his connection to Steve Bannon when I think it was BuzzFeed did a sort of expose of the alt-right. And there was an email from Bannon saying something like, if it's about Evola, I love it. He's clearly a very important figure in the minds of some of these leading figures of the nationalist right across the world, and particularly Steve Bannon. Tell us a bit about how Evola ties into it. Yes, I mean, Evola is the key pushing traditionalism, the linchpin, you know, t- tying traditionalism to right-wing politics. This earlier figure, René Guénon, might, might not have ever wanted to see that, and it might not have ever gone there. But Evola, Evola was a writer and a philosopher during Mussolini's reign. He was certainly interested in taking traditionalism, the more kind of cosmopolitan, unified world vision, of traditionalism and fitting it to a more nativistic European brand. And his idea was that not only could we see priests on top of a hierarchy, but you would also see Aryans on top of a hierarchy. And that 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 hierarchy that dissolves throughout time as the time cycle moves forward, it also has a racial component. And this figure, I mean, he writes, he writes journalism, he writes philosophy during Mussolini's age. He tries to ingratiate himself with the with the SS in Nazi Germany. He lives in Vienna for a while. But his philosophical contribution was first that he just brought more dynamism and more more specificity and more details to this notion of, of hierarchy and good and bad and how how society degrades over time. 
And he really believed, he thought that during his lifetime that actually time was rolling backwards. He saw Mussolini and Hitler and was excited by them as much for their aesthetics as for their ideology. He loved the fact that they looked, that they were dressing themselves like warriors and they made these warrior states. In his mind, that meant that we were just almost at the, at the top stage in the hierarchy that society had pushed itself away from material pursuits and, and toward a military state. And if he could only make it a priestly military state, we would have achieved you know, the golden age in, in our lifetimes. However, of course, everything comes crashing down. And so the post-war Evola, who, who really becomes admired by, by the radical right across Europe and especially in Britain in the 1980s and 90s, He's a little bit more of a defeatist and fatalistic thinker who says, well, the only thing I was foolish essentially to be optimistic about political change, the thing we need to do now is just keep ourselves preserved while this time cycle works itself out. Society will eventually collapse and hopefully we'll be alive for the cosmos to push us into the golden age. As the alt-right would put it, he was, he was black-pilled by the failure of... Uh, yes. Yeah. And they might also call him an accelerationist, which is a... Oh, yeah, another trendy term. A parallel yeah. term, yeah. But I was very interested in how you you connect Bannon to these to these things and, and, and to people like Evola, because it seemed to be, from the way you describe it in the book, you when you first put it to Bannon, he was sort of a bit shy about talking about it. And then as the book goes on, he he sort of lets you into his, his mindset a bit more. Is, is that what happened? Yes, yes. Which, which is very rare for Bannon. He, he's not a shy, <laughs> a shy person or, or ever at a loss for words. So it was quite remarkable when I asked him point blank the, the, the first meeting that we had, are you a traditionalist? And he waffled and then asked me to turn, the, turn my recorder off. So, and it took, it took quite a while, but he, he discovered René Gounon first. And I never was able to, to pin it down, but Bannon was very interested in alternative spirituality from his, from his college years, essentially, that's as, as he tells it to me, to the present. And there were little flashpoints in his life when he was able to devote more time to it. He became very interested in the teachings of Gurdjieff, who is a sort of Armenian mystic, somewhat related to traditionalism. And he discovers René Guénon somewhere in that period of time I'm fairly certain that he discovered Julius Evola later and possibly through the writings of another political traditionalist, Alexander Dugin from Russia. And, you know, he, des- he describes, you know, he's described discovering uh, Evola as a sort of revolution to him, that the opposition to modernity was, in his mind, the core idea, not the, not the theorized racism. He wouldn't say something like that to me. <laughs> I think if, if even if it were true, but but he said the opposition to modernity and and the way to think about politics as a a counterweight potential counterweight to modernity was was eye opening to him. Well, I mean, could it just be more that he's a Catholic, so he's he's sort of inclined towards uh, that way of thinking? But Catholicism doesn't really go as far as a lot of these sort of proto-fascistic think, thinkers go. Precisely. I mean, the 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 cyclic time element. You know, I mean, I'm, there may be some theologian who, you know, who who can agree with that more than more than others. But we we see a distinction there, and also something that was so so puzzling in my interviews. Of course, Bannon self identifies as a Catholic strongly, 
but he was always willing to break with its dogmas. He did not like the theological concept of there having been cyclic time until Christ came, and then we are in linear time. He said he's, he's critical of that, of that notion. And also there is a sort of, he would never call it syncretism, but I would call it religious pluralism, where he is very, very willing to say that the Bible as a text is not a complete doctrine for, for living one's life, and that you have to look to other religions. He was very interested in Buddhism, but also then he read into Hinduism quite deeply. And I asked him once, you know, could you ever have seen yourself converting to Sufism, as, as many traditionalists do? And he waffled on that question a little bit, too. <laughs> you know, eventually he said that it, w- it just wasn't his culture, it wasn't his upbringing, but it, it was a remarkable thing to hear Steve Bannon, who in the United States is, is known very much for his for the quote-unquote Muslim ban legislation that was uh, in executive orders that were, that were put through in the White House, to hear him struggling to decide whether or not he could have ever seen himself becoming a Sufi convert is, is quite remarkable. So, so I don't see this as an outgrowth of Catholicism per se. I, th- I think it, it's, it's a much more eccentric individual that we see illuminated um, in this story. One phrase that he used in relation, that Bannon used in relation to Trump that you've dedicated a, a chapter to in your book is the man against time. Bannon called Trump the man mm-hmm. against time. Can you explain a little bit about what that is? Is that against time in a, in a cyclical sense again? In time, yes, almost. It was an offhand comment. He referred to Trump as a man in time. In Sorry, yes, conversations. Man, yeah. And this was a puzzling thing that there may be some of your, your listeners who know of a, a, an exceptionally eccentric thinker, a woman named Savitri Devi, who became a sort of Hitler worshipper and has a theory, very much it's part of traditionalism, it's, it's part of the same Hindu-inspired eschatology, you could say. She believed that this time cycle could actually be pushed forward by influential figures, men, most of them, and that time degradation and, and everything was, was also tantamount to violence. And so men who are extremely violent and destructive participate in propelling the time cycle, and they were men in time. They simply destroyed. If you realize that this is going on, you're, you're, you're privy to the, to the motions of the time cycle, you can actually become a man above time. That's, that's being a sort of yogi or a... A priest, a priestly figure who who frees yourself from the trials of hope and and belief in politics. And I was having a conversation with Bannon about those two persona, and Savitri Devi, who he who he said that he knew about, he had heard of, and I and of course had heard him use some of her some of her terminology. I thought the curious thing with Bannon is there's a third figure in Savitri Devi's eschatology, and that is the man against time. That's the person who's both above and in time, a figure who understands the time cycle, but also knows that that you need to destroy in order to get to a golden age again. And in, in many ways, this, this seemed to be how Bannon saw himself. Bannon is a man against time, and Trump is the man in time. Yes, a figure who simply destroys not knowing the purpose of destruction, not knowing that destruction is part of bringing a society actually back to a golden age. I suppose that does tap into a lot of what sort of Trump movement people I've spoken to who often like to say that this movement is bigger than Trump. And I, I, I've sort of always thought they meant it in a political sense, but perhaps if you're right, they mean it in something more spiritual. Well, Steve does, at least. I mean, he sees 
other people, Alexander Dugan notably sees Steve as being a, a sort of uh, mystical figure. And Steve has a similar investment in in Trump and saying that, okay, well, here we are in this moment where he believes that we're at the kind of the end of a, a dark age and moving toward a cataclysmic death and rebirth as a society, as a country, as a, as a, as a global population. And you have a figure who comes along who has a rare capacity for destruction. It might not be literally literal violence. You know, Steve can interpret that as being the disassembly of, of a bureaucratic administrative state in the United States. But the theme is disintegration. And he does have a spiritual investment in it. He, see, he sees disintegration as returning order and, and direction to society. Well, this might help explain perhaps some of the ways in which he applied it to Trump's politics, but when, particularly when he was in the White House. I mean, on the campaign, I know that Bannon used to say, you know, dark is good, I think was one of his phrases, that, that sort of anything that sort of causes a maximum eruptions and, and media chaos is a sort of beneficial thing. Does, it, does that connect to it? Absolutely, absolutely. To disorient, to distract, to divide media coverage, all of that was, was, was a conscious strategy. He used to say that, I mean, the, the strategy is to flood the zone with shit. It is to simply overwhelm watchdogs and opponents and, and institutions like the media with, with actions and statements that they just become paralyzed with, with panic, essentially, and, and, and don't function. And, I mean, looking back at the opening weeks of the Trump White House, there, it seemed to work very much in that, in that way. But he wanted to see that. He also wanted to see a number of administrative ministerial posts in, in the federal government staffed with people who were hostile to the, to the institutions that they were running. If that is, you know, nationally coordinated education, if it is the Environmental Protection Agency, one by one, the figures who were nominated to fill these posts wanted to see them broken down in some sense or, were, or, or you know, deeply disagreed with, with their, their core fundamental mission. And it might actually explain Steve Banner's latest incarnation, which is on this podcast that he does, which started off being called The War Room and it was about 2020, but it's very quickly become about the pandemic, about coronavirus. Yes. And it seems to me the sheer level of chaos that the coronavirus is causing feeds into a lot of what Bannon thinks about the world. Absolutely. And it runs deeper yet, I would say, Freddie. He was, in the United States, he was one of the most prominent conservative voices to jump out in front of this so early. I mean, he, he was, he's been running that podcast since January. And for him, it's, it's not just the chaos of the coronavirus, but what types of responses are being rewarded to the coronavirus. He sees... As he would put it, a, a growth in community. Other traditionalists, I've spoken to Alexander Dugan about the coronavirus, they see this as being a sort of divine punishment for globalization, for the lack of community, for the movement of people, and for the, for the irrelevance of borders. And they all would love to see a more segmented, disassembled world. And, you know, the, the, the call for borders is certainly strengthened by the, by the emergence of a pandemic that overruns any population involved in, in global trade and in the movement of peoples. And, and it also ties into China in a big way, which, which is perhaps Steve Banner's you know, biggest point of concern, and perhaps because he, he's partly funded by anti-Beijing Chinese interests, shall we say. Precisely, precisely. 
Yes, and, and, and this is also part of his, his traditionalism, but he sees, he sees globalization as having its, its ultimate engine in China. Some other people would say it was the United States, in fact, but he sees the manufacturing power of, of China as being the absolute engine for the growth of, of a, a sort of merchant, global merchant class that ignores borders and is, and is opposed to the you know, working class peasantry, as, as they'll sometimes say, in each of these countries. So the fact that he was already primed both professionally and politically, intellectually, and spiritually to be opposed to, to China, and the fact that the virus emerged out of China, and the fact that, in his estimation, the, the CCP, the Communist Party in China, has been less than fully forthcoming about, about the virus and how, how it should be treated. All of that certainly nourishes his, his most public and prominent political campaign right now, which is trying to oppose the Communist Party of China in all ways, at all times. And then there's another aspect to this, of course, which is Russia. And you've mentioned Alexander Dugin already. And it struck me reading your book that a lot of the conversation about Trump and Russia obsessed over whether there was collusion and so on. But actually, there's a more of a sort of intellectual connection between, if you like, the, the Bannon side of Trumpism and uh, the way Russia approaches global politics, which is that, you know, to be to be profoundly anti-liberal, I suppose, or to be profoundly conservative and traditionalist. Yes, yes. I mean, a, a historian of Putin would probably want to jump in and say that this this has not been what Putinism has always meant. A social conservatism and nationalism are, are kind of relatively recent inventions of his in, in place of no no particular political ideology. But you know, Steve looks to Russia as a fellow European slash Christian or Western state and society. Not so much by politics, not by political values like whatever, you know, democracy or human rights, but, but instead by deeper pre-modern essences. A Judeo-Christian civilizational or societal orientation belongs in alignment with the rest of the West, belongs to Europe. <clears throat> belongs in, in alignment with the United States, which is also part of the Judeo-Christian West in his mind. Also, Brazil is part of that. And he wants to see these states honor that commonality rather than, rather than secular political values, which is, which is, of course, the status quo and the standard way to think about alignment in, in a lot of geopolitical dealings, at, at least officially. Of course, economics underlies that. But this has been one of his pushes. It, it has the added, the added benefit for Bannon of, of potentially pulling Russia away from China. And Bannon sees the alignment between China, Iran, Turkey, and Russia as, as posing a, a, a serious threat to the United States and to other, other Western nations. But he's been making that case to, to Alexander Dugan this this Russian traditionalist uh, philosopher for for some time now trying trying in a number of ways to you know to to bring reorient Russia toward the West. Well, there's this fascinating bit in your book, which is the meeting. I, I think the the way you've written it, it's it's Bannon relating their meeting in Rome to you. Is it, is that right? The, yes. The, uh, Bannon yes. and Dugin meeting in Rome to discuss the future. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, the two met in secrecy in, in November 2018, 
a fairly bold move on Bannon's part, given how things were in the United States at the time, given the fact that back then it was all about federal investigations of the Trump administrations and the Trump campaign's connections to Russia. But nonetheless, Alexander Dugan, who's an incredibly controversial figure, he's, he's sanctioned, he's barred from entering the United States and Canada, and has been an influence on Russian foreign policy for decades, a uh, complicated influencer, I, I should add, but, but nonetheless. The two of them met in, in Rome, spent the entire day together, talked a lot of philosophy with each other, talked about Evola, talked about Gunon, talked a little Heidegger as well. But the core of the meeting was, was Bannon's push to try and get Dugan to begin propagating and producing commentary to push for Russia's reorientation away from the East and toward the West. I wonder if, I mean, we of, quite often get these sort of rather hysterical documentaries or bits of investigative journalism about kind of Steve Bannon's network, global network of anti-globalists. Mm-hmm. What I found very interesting about your book is that you, you, you don't take that approach, but nonetheless there is a sort of intellectual thread that connects what's going on in Brazil with what's going on in Hungary, say, and what's going on to some extent with, with Trump, although I, I think we both agree that Trump is slightly different. Yeah, part of what makes makes this more compelling to me is that Bannon is having conversations with a small circle of of individuals who are also interested and affiliate with this exceptionally radical philosophy, traditionalism, an unusual philosophy, traditionalism. But it is it's not formalized. There isn't there isn't a a movement or an organization. There isn't a you know an official circle or network, as you say. It's in all the men themselves, and they are all men, I should add. They all have sort of soft influence. None of them are politicians themselves. They're they're intellectuals. They're advisors, strategists. But that's that's it. So the, the the lack of formality here also might end up being a benefit to it. Might make it a more a more auspicious cause from from their perspective. Just because so much of what Bannon does otherwise are are these you know these very public, very attention grabbing activities, most of which have floundered. Although some some have not, of course. But this is very much behind the scenes. Yeah, very much behind the scenes. Yes, it, it is interesting that all these figures you're speaking of are men because I, I can't help thinking that they want to attach themselves to a woman leader at some point i remember marion le pen mm-hmm. was very much a sort of buzz figure among in in bannon world for for a while she's perhaps slightly faded but perhaps yes. you know th- th- just as um you know if you like neoliberalism needed thatcher traditionalism needs a female figure to really break into the mainstream absolutely i mean and, and the history runs deep on that front of course bannon is very interested in Le Pen's in in France, but he he spent a lot of time before linking up with Trump, promoting Sarah Palin, who I, I, I will assume is familiar to, to some of your viewers, a former vice presidential candidate under John McCain, and you know their relationship hasn't hasn't been that active as of late after the failed presidential run of of John McCain, Sarah Palin gradually faded away, but it's it's worth noting another peculiar aspect of Bannon's thinking is that he places a spiritual value in the rural working class and in rural colloquial society, for, for lack of a better term, in the United States. 
And so much of what he seemed inspired by with Sarah Palin was not just the the occasional populist rhetoric coming from her, but also the fact that she was a plain-speaking rural American from rural Alaska. A mother, yeah. A mother, a mother, a simple person, as far from a globalist elite as as, as one could come. Absolutely, and I, I think your words are quite quite apt that, that this cause, to the extent it's a unified cause, would certainly be according with precedent by, by looking for, for a female leader. Well, Ben, thank you very much for uh, coming on to Americano. I hope we get to speak again. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Thank you for the time, Freddie. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite. (laughs) 